0: And for the rest of you, I hope you have your Bibles, and that you'll turn in them to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, and from the text that Chris just read for us, starting in verse 7. And you'll find this on page 812 of the Bibles in the backs of the chairs. Every now and then, growing up, my mom would use this phrase. And she's not here today, by the way. Notice. Ask your father. My parents did share the responsibilities and duties of parents quite evenly. But as any parents know, sometimes you need to defer to your parenting partner for any number of reasons. And this was the case from time to time with my mom. Today we come in Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount to a text that is so vital for us to understand, so core to the daily lives of the kingdom people of God, and so essential to us as we pursue growth in our understanding of what it means to be subjects of the king of the unexpected kingdom. And what this passage boils down to is that same phrase that my mom used to use from time to time, though with a rather different motivation and cause. Jesus essentially says these words in the verses that Chris just read a moment ago. Ask your father. And no, Jesus is not saying it like a mom in exasperation or fatigue or frustration when her children are wearing her out and peppering her with endless questions. Rather, Jesus is using this phrase to communicate a vital aspect of his teaching on what it means to live out his disciples' status as kingdom And there are three aspects to his message here as I see it. The first of which comes in verse 7. Asking is commanded. Asking is commanded. He says, ask, seek, knock in verse 7. All of these three words fall under a category of what's called present Active imperatives in the Greek grammar. In other words, these words are each commands, imperative, of Jesus to do these things right then and there, presently, and in an ongoing manner. So it's not just an imperative, it's not just a command, it's a present imperative, it's a command to do something right now, but it's also a present active imperative, meaning it has continual effect. And so in one sense, you could translate this, you must be asking, you must be seeking, you must be knocking continually. And this, these words pretty much are as simple as that. Jesus commanded his people to be people who are constantly, regularly, faithfully, habitually asking, seeking, knocking. Asking what? And asking whom? Well, if you skip to verse 11, we see the answer to that. He says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? And so it's your Father in heaven that Jesus' people are commanded to be always asking. And it's good things that they are to be asking for. Jesus is saying, ask your Father We'll look at verse 11 a little bit more later, but for now, let's just park for just a moment on this fact that asking is commanded. Did you know that? Do you know that you're not simply invited to ask your Father, though you certainly are? You're also commanded. If you're part of Jesus' kingdom, if you've turned from sin, repented of sin, trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, you're commanded to be someone who regularly, rhythmically, is asking your Father for good things. And yes, the word for this is prayer. Prayer. That's what prayer is, essentially, isn't it? Asking your Father. And to be sure, there are multiple aspects and elements to prayer, but one key element of prayer is asking. And so when you are asking for good things as you pray, Christian brother, Christian sister, you're obeying a command of Jesus. But that also means that if you're not bringing your requests to God, this command is not being obeyed. And the command to pray isn't just exclusive to Jesus in the New Testament, though it certainly flows from his teaching. Think about Paul's exhortation to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 6, which we saw just a couple of weeks ago. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Instead of sitting around worrying, Paul says to the Philippians, ask your Father. Just like Jesus says, ask your Father. But it's not only commanded, even though it is commanded. There is also a promise connected to Jesus' command. And so the second aspect of Jesus' message in these verses is that asking leads to receiving. In verses 7 and 8, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. You see this? Jesus' words here present both logic and an assuring promise. He doesn't just say, ask, seek, and knock in a present, active, imperative way, which he could. He has the authority and the right to come and just make commands on us without any explanation. He is the potter. We are the clay. But graciously, as is so characteristic of his gentle and lowly heart, he also includes a promise. When he says, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened, he's saying, as you are regularly asking your Father for good things, you will be given what what you ask. As you are continually seeking your Father, you will find him. As you are continually knocking, the door will be opened. And that's the point of verse 8 as well, isn't it? He goes on to say, for... So he's explaining it for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus explains verse 7 with verse 8. It's logical, Jesus says. As you ask, you will receive. As you seek, you will find. As you knock, the door will be opened. It's just logical. But it's not just an explanation of logic that Jesus gives. There's also an expression of a promise because Jesus knows that it is hard for his children to not to doubt that their prayers are being heard. He knows that our sight is finite. He knows that our experience of time and space is painful and plodding, and that we need assurance. And so he graciously gives it. He says, I'm commanding you, but I'm also assuring you. Obedience to my command will bring blessing. Brothers and sisters, this is both so simple and at the same time so profoundly astonishing. Jesus is saying that it's only logical to ask your father because people who ask, receive. People who seek, find. People who knock, have the door opened. But he's also simultaneously saying that you can be assured that when you ask your father, Your asking will lead to receiving. Your seeking will lead to finding. Your knocking will lead to opened doors. And so we just pause and say, isn't our Lord Jesus so gracious to us in his teaching? He doesn't just snap at us and say, ask your father. Rather, he assures us of the promise that as we ask, we receive. He explains the logic of the thing by putting it in plain terms. Asking leads to receiving, doesn't it? If you don't ask, you could say it in the reverse. You won't receive. And that reminds us of the negative, of the reverse of this being true, doesn't it? It's what James 4 verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, in the context of that passage, James is writing to address some significant problems in the church, saying that his readers' covetous desires were leading to literal violence and strife and fighting. But he says to them in the midst of that, you don't have what you want because you're not asking for it. Now, as some of you already know, later on in that passage, he goes on to give further explanation as to why they're not getting what they want even when they do ask. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But here's the point. If you don't ask, you won't receive, James says. If you don't seek, you could state it in the reverse of what Jesus is saying, you won't find. If you don't knock, the door won't be open. It reminds me of of parenting. You ever have your kid say something like, I can't find my fill-in-the-blank, and you say, well, have you looked for it? And sometimes, no. (laughs) Well, then how do you expect to find it? If you really look for it, you'll find it. And sometimes kids just, you know, haven't looked in the right place. But you get what I'm saying. You're not going to find it if you don't actually look for it. And in the same way, if you're not really seeking the Lord, if you're not really asking Him for good things, if you're not really, as it were, knocking on His door over and over and over again, you can't expect to receive the blessings of good things that He gives to His children. And that idea of blessing from the Father is at the heart of the third part of Jesus' message in this passage. Number three, you're asking a good father. In verses 9 through 11, he gives this illustration. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. So he gives this illustration and he starts with the word or, but don't let that word throw you off or confuse you. That's just how the Greek indicates the beginning of a statement like this. Or let me put it this way. So it's just an illustration. And with this illustration, Jesus is saying that any decent earthly father wouldn't be cruel to his children when they ask for bread or fish. And then he uses a form of argumentation, you may or may not have heard of, called a fortiori, which is to prove a point by arguing that if the lesser is true, the stronger or the greater must also be true. And that's what Jesus means when he is saying here, if decent fathers are inclined to be kind and gracious to their children, how much more so with your heavenly father Now, I'd invite you to turn back maybe just one page and look at chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Back to Jesus' instructions on prayer. Starting in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Do you notice any similar themes or ideas in our text and that passage? When Jesus is giving instructions on prayer to his disciples, a major point that he makes is that the one they're praying to is their father. He goes on to say it in in, uh, verse 9 of that passage. Pray then like this, our father in heaven. He's making this point that the one that they're praying to is their heavenly father. In the passage on the Lord's Prayer, you remember, he's making the point that God is not like some pagan deity who needs his or her arm twisted or the heaping up of empty words and rituals in order to appease him. No, Jesus says, God is your father. And as such, he knows exactly what you need doesn't require arm twisting he doesn't need convincing in fact he doesn't even need to be informed at all he knows what you need even before you ask it and so you're asking a good father but we need to consider this a little bit more because being a good father doesn't simply mean giving your child literally everything that they ask for Dads, can you imagine what a wreck it would make of your children and their lives if you literally gave them everything they asked for all the time? That wouldn't make you a good father. That would make you an irresponsible father. I mean, for example, none of my boys are even teenagers yet, and at least two of them have asked me, I think and hope in jest, if they could drive. (laughs) If I gave them what they wanted in those instances, that would make me a bad father, not a good one at least in our subdivision. (laughs) And the same goes for a lot of other things. Dad, I don't want the dinner that's prepared for us. Can I just have a cupcake and some chips? Dad, can I stay home from school and play video games all day? Dad, can I play with those matches? Dad, can I stay up all night? These are not very far-fetched examples of what our children might ask, are they? But if we always grant those requests, it would not be good or loving in the end. If you only ever give their chil- your children what they want to eat, if you, only, if you never teach your children to be responsible and discipline themselves to get their schoolwork done, if you, only, if you let them play with things that could be fatally dangerous to them, if you never put them to sleep, you're going to wind up with irresponsible, self-centered, unhealthy, and miserable children, right? But if you're a good dad, you do require your kids to go to bed eventually, You do train them to eat what's put in front of them because tastes can be acquired and healthy food is important. You do not grant them their wish to skip school for no reason and fall behind on their studies. You don't let them get behind the wheel of a car without training. In the same way, our good Father does not always give us what we ask for because sometimes what we're asking for is not going to be good for us in the end even if it seems like that now. And that's hard to swallow, isn't it? But that's what James 4 goes on to say in the following verse, as I mentioned just a moment ago. In verse 3, James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions, in this case. So James is saying... You don't have what you want because you're not asking for it, but also, even when you are asking for it, you're asking for the wrong things, and sometimes even with the wrong motives. And so, no, my friends, God is not just a genie that comes out of a lamp and grants you unlimited wishes every time you summon him through prayer. Rather, he is a good father, not just a father. And in fact, Jesus says he's a better father than even the best father in this world. In fact, the way he phrases it at the beginning of verse 11 is this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And that's a a really important little phrase. He says, you who are evil. And Jesus doesn't mean that in these verses that everyone is literally as evil as anyone could possibly be. He simply means what the rest of the Bible teaches, including Old Testament writings that came before he spoke these words, that everyone, no matter who they are, is stained with sin from birth. David said in Psalm 51 that I was conceived in sin. The prophet Jeremiah said that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked, and that's what Jesus means. He's not saying that those he was speaking to at that moment were all the worst kinds of people who had all done all the worst kinds of Of things. He's simply saying that mankind has sin stained hearts, but not God. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you who are stained with sin love to give good gifts to your children, how much more your eternally good father in heaven? He's a good father to the core, unlike earthly fathers, the best of which are even stained with sin. So he's a good father, not just a father, but he also gives good things, not just anything or everything to his children. So he's not going to give them a stone when bread is needed. But also means he's not going to bring healing when closeness to him, often coming through refining fires of a prolonged sickness, is needed. He's not going to give his children a serpent when they need fish. He's also not going to remove all their stress and troubles if they still need to learn contentment and joy and satisfaction in him alone. And so you see, you can ask your father, and you can ask him knowing that asking leads to receiving. And you can ask him knowing that he's a good father. He gives good gifts. And he withholds things that we ask for that we don't need. Because he's got the long haul in mind. He sees the whole picture. And yes, even in the context of this passage, he has heavenly treasures stored up for his children. The way that Jesus is phrasing these verses, combined with what he said in chapter 6 with his instructions on the Lord's Prayer, shows that this knowledge of God's sovereign goodness, which sometimes leads to us not getting what we want, not getting what we want, is not, however, a reason to be cynical or jaded, resigned to the fact that we're just not going to get what we want all the time, and I'm just going to have to grin and bear it, life sucks, and that's how I move on. No, rather, the way that Jesus speaks here is he's inviting his kingdom people to ask and to seek and to knock with expectancy and with a willingness to learn what it is that God wants, eager to accept it as a good gift from his hand. And you know, my friends, Jesus would later on experience an answer to his prayer that he didn't want. You might even say he didn't get an answer at all. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 39. Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, he, that is Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. You see, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In this passage, we see Jesus praying three times that the cup of God's wrath would be taken from him. You could say with his three times of prayer that he asked, sought, and knocked. And yet... The good father, his good father's answer was to not take away the cup of Jesus' suffering. You see it right there in the text. At the end of this passage, Jesus says, My betrayer is at hand. It's starting now. The cup of suffering was literally walking up to him at that moment. But what did Jesus also say as he prayed? He prayed, if it's possible, Let this cup of suffering pass from me. But he also said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And in that demonstration of trust in his father's sovereign and good and wise plan, Jesus lived out the very thing that he taught in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. He prayed acknowledging that the father had plans The father had glorious and painful plans for the crushing and the suffering of his son in order to bring the redemption from the market of sin slavery that sinners by the millions have been receiving for thousands of years, ever since that cup of suffering was not taken away from Jesus, even though he asked for it. You see, friends, the goodness of God was on display in the denial of Jesus' request. Because through Jesus' suffering, through that cup of wrath, two glorious things happen. Number one, sinners like you and me can be saved. Simply trusting in Jesus by faith and in his atoning sacrifice on the cross, bleeding and dying for Sinners. And number 2 another thing happens Jesus is glorified. Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 says this. He Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And so the good father's answer to Jesus' request was no. But that was because he's a good father. And he had good plans both for sinners like you and me and for Jesus to be glorified. Friends, you know, when we ask our Father, we are asking a good Father. And we know that He will give us good gifts, even if they don't seem good to us at first. Even if the answer doesn't feel pleasing in the immediate. And as we trust in His nature as a good Father and a good Shepherd, as we just sang, I will trust, I will trust in you alone. As we trust in this Father while we pray, we submit our desires to His will. We trust that He will only give us what we truly need and therefore withhold from us that which we shouldn't have either at all or just yet. You know, I think that's what David was getting at in Psalm 37 verses 4 through 5 when he said, "'Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart.'" Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. I think David's saying, and we can learn from this, that as we delight in God, as we trust in him, as we submit to him, our desires will naturally be conformed to his plans. And you will then get what you desire because what you desire will match up with God's plans. What glorious truths these are. What depths of meaning. What assurance of hope. Friends, I hope you're hearing this call from Jesus to simply ask your Father. But I wonder if maybe there are some questions in your mind as well. Questions such as, why would Jesus give this teaching here and now in the text, in this portion of the text of the Sermon on the Mount? It doesn't really seem like an obvious transition from... Do not judge, and don't be anxious, and all these sorts of things. But think about the broader context of this passage. Jesus has been speaking, preaching, calling his disciples to a radical way of living. To have lives that are characterized by kingdom life. And so he says, for example, instead of being concerned primarily with rule conformity, Go deeper and care most about the heart. He also said, instead of trying to show others how godly and mature and right you are, focus on what your father sees and knows. He also said, instead of focusing on this life and earthly material security, invest in the life to come and live in light of eternity. So these are radical things that are hard for us to do. And so in order to follow Jesus' radical teaching, do you think maybe an intervention in our hearts by God's sovereign grace might be needed? Remember chapter 5, verse 48, what Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sure sounds like something we might need God's help with, doesn't it? So I don't think this passage, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, is any kind of random tack on about the need for prayer in order to get the things that we want. I think it's much more closely connected to the rest of Jesus' teaching and has to do with our need for God to work in our hearts as we pursue the kind of kingdom life that he calls his disciples to. So ask your father to give you the kind of heart-based righteous living that characterize kingdom people. Ask your father for the kind of righteous heart that cares most about what he thinks rather than impressing others. Ask your father to give you a drive for eternal treasure rather than earthly and material gain. So that's one question you might have. Why these words here and now in the text? But another question you might have is one that, I've had, and I've even spoken with some of you about this, why is there even a command to pray? Didn't he say that your father knows what you want before you even ask? So why pray? Why are we even commanded, not just invited, to pray? Now, I need to acknowledge that there's certainly a sense to which the answer to that question will remain a mystery to us in our earthly lives. We simply cannot wrap our minds, our finite minds, around the economy, if you will, of God's work in the lives of his children through prayer. But the scripture teaches that. It clearly commands us to pray. And in multiple passages, both in Old and New Testaments, we are taught that our prayers actually affect things. So how on earth can this be, we say? Much of that will, I think, remain a mystery. But I also think there is a sense to which we need to understand that when we pray, we are not informing God about things He doesn't otherwise know, and we're not overcoming His reluctance to listen to us. So there's a sense to which prayer isn't only about its effect on God as its effect on us. Now, please don't misunderstand I am not saying that prayer is only about us. We must hold in tension the scriptural teaching that the prayers of the people of God have power. And also that God doesn't need us to pray as if he's incapable of doing what he wants unless we ask. It reminds me of uh, novels by Frank Peretti years ago where you just we need more people to pray or else the angels won't do the thing that God wants them to do. That's not how it works. But at the same time, isn't it true that prayer is more about our submission to his will than about trying to get him to submit to ours? You see what I mean? That's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not saying that prayer doesn't do anything other than teach you to submit to God's will, but I am saying that prayer is the means that God has ordained for us to express our needs to him, submit our wills to him, and yes, even to somehow, in a way that we can't fully wrap our minds around, participate in his divine economy of how he implements his sovereign wise and good plans why does God command us to pray? I think there's several things there, not all of which we can understand, but part of it is we will learn to submit our wills to him when we pray, and we participate in his divine working somehow when we pray. The third question you might have is a little more personal. If I don't get good things that I ask for, aren't doesn't that mean that Jesus' words aren't true? You might be sitting in your seats thinking, I prayed for a more stable income so I can provide for my family. That's a good thing. But my income has gone down. I prayed that my children would grow up to serve the Lord, but at least one of them at the moment isn't a believer. I prayed for the Lord to help me grow closer to him, but all I've gotten is suffering. Two responses to this. First, we have to remember what I said earlier about God not being a genie. If you're not getting what you're asking for, you might not be asking for a good thing, even though you think it is a good thing. Or your motives for asking might not be as pure as you think. Or what you're asking for might be a good thing, but the time isn't right, or God has a different good thing planned for you. The phrase, knock and it will be opened, doesn't mean all you have to do is say the magic words like open sesame, and you're going to get whatever you want. God is a good father, which means he not only gives us what's good, he doesn't give us what isn't. And so just because you're not getting what you're asking for doesn't mean God isn't living up to what his word says. It might be that we're just missing something that we can't see. But the second response to this question, I would like to offer simply in the form of of these lyrics from the hymn by John Newton. You could sing it to the tune of Amazing Grace, and this is the text of that hymn. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sin and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and made me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. In those hymn's words, we find a reply to questions that we might have about God's sovereign plans not matching up with our requests. Sometimes God's good gifts to us include our suffering for the sake of refining, which is good in the end. So let me circle back in just a final couple of minutes here and state what this passage teaches in the form of four applicational commands. Number one, take this with you, pray obediently because God commands it. Pray obediently because God commands it. That's one simple takeaway. You need to be praying. It's part of obedience to Jesus. You need to be praying faithfully, constantly, in private, and you need to be praying faithfully and regularly, corporately with the body. And parents, let me just say this briefly to you. Your children are watching you. So do they see you modeling regular prayer to your good father in your home, perhaps privately on your own, and corporately with the body? This can happen in your own quiet time every day with the Lord in prayer, whatever that looks like for you. That can happen right here in corporate worship on Sundays. That certainly happens in fellowship group gatherings. It happens in our family prayer lunches that happen once a month right after church on Sunday mornings. These are times of prayer that you must be engaged with and invested in, in part, in obedience to Jesus. Number two, pray expectantly because God answers. As you pray in submission to his will and ask him for good things while being willing to receive whatever he decides, you will find his promises and this promise fulfilled. Good gifts will be given. The door to blessing eternally will be opened. You will seek him if you find him. God answers. So you can have confidence when you pray. And not because you've earned it, but because Jesus has. In fact, that is what the author of Hebrews means in uh, Hebrews 4. I, I neglected to put it on the screen. I'll just read it to you briefly. Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus has earned it. Everything before that verse speaks of Christ as our great high priest and his saving work for us. Because of the saving work on the cross of Jesus Christ, because he has atoned for our sins, because he has risen from the dead, you can boldly approach the throne of grace in your time of need, expecting him to give you what you need, even if it doesn't match up exactly with what you want. Number three, pray securely Because you can trust him. God can be trusted. You don't have to worry that God will not handle your requests and your tender heart with care. We're going to see in just a few chapters in Matthew 11, Jesus says some of the most amazing words in all of Scripture, that his heart is gentle and lowly. He is gentle with you. He cares about you. He does not quench a smoldering wick, as the prophet says. He does not break a bruised reed. If you're his child, he loves you. He is your shepherd. He is caring for you well, much better than any earthly father could. And so, pray securely because he can be trusted. Fourth and finally, pray hopefully because God is your father. You know, in this text... Jesus actually uses the word for Father, Abba, here. Perhaps you've heard of this word if you've been a Christian for a while, heard the teaching of God's word on this, on this word. But for those of you that are new to the Christian faith or just with this theological terminology, Abba is not just one of my dad's favorite 70s bands, Abba. It's a Hebrew designation for a father that is personal and affectionate. In fact, as some scholars I read indicated, the word Abba would have been heard in the everyday lives of the Jews. And as a result, since it was such a common title for fathers and dads in homes, the Jews would not have dared use use such an unholy and earthly and common term to address Yahweh, the one true God. But astonishingly, Jesus uses that word here. He's your Abba. He's communicating that God is not just some reluctant authority figure in the sky whose arm needs to be twisted to get what you want. He is not just or only a transcendent and holy God. He's also a condescending and loving father. He's like a dad to you. He's your Abba. And I know that some of you understandably have a hard time when it comes to the idea of God as a dad because your father was not a good one. He failed you, and so it's hard to hope in God as your father since your earthly father let you down. But Jesus Christ comes to you with good news and to assure you that if you've repented of sin, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you are truly a Christian, you can pray with hope because God is your father, and he's a far better father than your earthly father was, but not only that, than any earthly father, good or bad, could ever Friends, we need to hear these words from Jesus. Ask your Father. Some of us are really struggling to grow in the areas of kingdom life and discipleship that Jesus has been teaching about in his great sermon. And if that's you, may I just ask, are you asking your Father about it? It's far too commonly the case that Christians are weak in their growth and discipleship because it's far too rare for them to ask their father about it. It's far too uncommon for disciples of Jesus to seek the Lord's face and to pursue knowing him more on an intimate, personal, relational level. It's far too rare for the people of God to ask for his good gifts of spiritual growth and eternal blessings and heavenly riches. It's far too unlikely as well that they will persist in asking and knocking, like knocking on a door over and over and over and over again. So friends, prayer is not a some sort of magic talisman that grants us wishes. But if you're not asking your father in prayer for the good gifts that he loves to give to his children, don't be surprised if they're not coming. So ask your father. He is good. He is listening. And he will give you what you need. Let's pray. Lord, you have this morning bid us to come. As we started our order of worship, you have called everyone who thirsts to come to the waters, he who has no money to come and buy and eat, to come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. And this morning, you have fed poor beggars through your word. We are fed spiritually when we read your scriptures. We acknowledge that we will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are your ways our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts. As the rain and the snow comes down from heaven and does not return there, but waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so Your word is that proceeds out from your mouth. You have promised that it will not return empty, but will accomplish your purpose and will succeed in the thing for which you sent it. So, Lord, do this today. We pray as we digest the good food of your word. Let's continue in prayer quietly and even put into practice some of these things we considered this morning.